Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No bones about it, we have a spooktacular Halloween-inspired episode for you this week. Three witches team up to exact revenge on the guy who broke their hearts in the new rom-com from Lana Harper. The queen of the northern gothic, Wendy Webb, shares the chilling secrets of Lake Superior with us. And then we close out with a collection of diverse fairy tales from best-selling author Soman Chinani. This is Chapter 197 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and get ready to have some scale of fun. They say revenge is a dish best served cold, but in Lana Harper's new queer rom-com, it's best served with a side of magic. Set in the magical town of Thistle Grove, three jilted millennial witches join forces to bring down the guy who's broken more than one of their hearts. But before Lana and I had a chance to talk about Payback's a Witch, we stumbled upon some shared family history. Take a listen. I just noticed that your last name is an alternate spelling of my um, my mother's maiden name, which is so cool. I've never seen it spelled that way before. Get out. What's your mother's maiden name? Uh, it's it's Cernkovic, so it's the Serbian-Bosnian variant of your last name. So it's like a C-E-R-N-O-V-I-C kind of yes. thing? Yes, exactly like that. Yep. That's so funny because... Yeah. My there's the theory that the last name was probably spelt that way at some point because my family is from like a German speaking region of what is now Slovakia. So it's actually spelt yeah, in the German sense. way. I've never met anyone mm-hmm. who said they know have a name that's so similar. That's so cool. Yes. Did your mother tell you what it translates into? Because I was told it means black devil. Yes, it does. It's totally what it means. Excellent. Which I think is so cool. Yeah. It, and I'm and totally on point for this interview. Mm-hmm. I know. And I was just thinking about that. I was like, oh, my gosh, maybe this is where all my witchy tendencies come from. It's actually <laughs> my grandma. I, I hadn't even thought of this. This is a fun fall rom-com that's about coming into your own and what it means to be home. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit more about it? Sure. So Payback's a Witch is a queer witchy rom-com. Um, I think of it as John Tucker Must Die meets Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So there's a a prodigal witch very reluctantly coming home uh, to her magical hometown. There's a spellcasting tournament. There's a vengeance pact. And there may even be queer witches falling for each other. So all of those things wrapped up in one Halloween scented candle of a book, hopefully. I love that this fictional town of yours, Thistle Grove, smells like a fall Yankee candle, but 
There's no pumpkin spice involved, right? There can't be pumpkin spice involved purely because I just don't like it. I am team apple cider uh, all the way. I also really like uh, chocolate cinnamon chili combos, but I've just never been a pumpkin spice girl, so it's never mentioned in the book. What was the jumping off point for this story? Was it this idea of the Vengeance Coven, the Enchanted Town, a magical tournament? Uh, It was really actually a collaboration with me and my agent. We were thinking, you know, what to do next. And she knew that witchy rom-coms were something people were kind of getting hungry for. So she floated a couple ideas by me. And one of them was, okay, what if you do John Tucker must die, but everyone is witches and two of the witches fall in love. And I was like, that's brilliant. I can do a lot with that. And so I used that as my jumping off point and decided, you know, there's going to be a magical town. There will be four families. The spellcasting tournament fell right into place. And so everything kind of organically flowed from there. But it was really a brainstorm session between me and her that led me all the way down that path. I know you're a practicing Wiccan. How much of that ended up infused in your book? Not a whole lot of it. So a lot of, you know, modern Wiccan practices are kind of earthy and slow. And there's a lot of meditation and and manifesting things um, and not the kind of flashy glittery rituals, you know, that happen in the book. So I would say more it's my my attraction to witchcraft and to the occult that formed the impetus for why I would want to write it. And of course, there's the Wheel of the Year holidays like Samhain, Halloween um, are in the book, but not the kind of practical day-to-day realities of witchcraft, more what, what witchcraft should be if it were in a movie. That's kind of how I think about the book version of it. And I think that's also the type of witchcraft that a lot of people have come to expect to see and to read about. Exactly. Because, I mean, you want it to be sparkly. You want it to be fun. You don't necessarily need it to be dark and deep and old, which I think is beautiful as well. And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of books and movies that deal with sort of the darker edge of witchcraft. But I wanted Payback to be really lighthearted and really sparkly and just something that people could just fully immerse themselves in and enjoy without having to consider a lot of the darker implications. And witches themselves have really come a long way in literature from the three hags in Shakespeare's Macbeth to, you know, your young, stylish, diverse cast of witches in this book. Do you think this is just a reflection of society embracing like all the differences amongst us or is there something else going on? I think that's a large part of it. And I also think just the understanding of witchcraft is attaining a more mainstream feminist perspective. So I think the emphasis now is more on kind of the power of actualizing yourself and manifesting the life that you want, embracing that sense of community of knowing that you have all of these other sisterhood of witches who are doing the same thing. And also the fact that it can be beautiful because there's Instagram and TikTok that glamorize a lot of aspects um, of rituals. You see beautiful spell candles and smudge sticks. So I think the, the general perception is shifting partly due to social media and just partly due to the fact that I think women are embracing it more widely than has probably ever been allowed before. I know I've gone down that path. I've got a couple of sets of tarot cards, <laughs> you know, the candles, I all that kind tarot. of stuff. <laughs> and that plays a little bit into the book, too, because your main character, Emmy, is part of a or works for a subscription box service that kind of deals in those kinds of things. Yeah, I thought that would be a fun kind of tongue in cheek moment because there are so many witchy subscription services. 
Um, and sometimes they can feel kind of silly, but I, I think that that can be a little bit unfair because it's really not silly if it's meaningful to you. And I think a lot of people find genuine meaning in being surrounded by crystals and tarot cards and plants and these curated selections of magic. Uh, it's as real as you feel it to be. So I did want to kind of portray in the book that this is something that's happening. It's especially kind of the millennial witch is a, is a trope, but there's no reason to believe uh, that, that's, that that's the whole of it. It can be real magic too, just the way that Emmy's family is. I want to quickly talk about the love story in the book, which you mentioned is a queer one. Why was it important yes. to you to represent a bisexual relationship? So I've always wanted to read um, bisexual fiction and sapphic fiction in general. That's always been um, my happy place. I am a bisexual woman. So I, I felt it particularly important to highlight a story in which the bisexual couple didn't have to deal with any kind of coming out story or any kind of angst or unhappiness that was attaching to the bisexuality itself. So I just wanted it to be a natural organic part of the story. Nobody questions it. Nobody thinks about it. It just is what it is in kind of the most, the happiest and most perfect of safe spaces for the two of them. So I really wanted it to be that kind of like cozy, spooky refuge of a book for anyone who likes reading about bisexual romance. Will we get to visit Thistle Grove again? Yes, absolutely. There is already a sequel in the works. Uh, it's called From Bad to Cursed. That will be out in May, um, and it will be the story of Issa Avramov, who is uh, Talia Avramov's younger sister, and Rowan Thorne, who is Lyndon Thorne's uh, twin brother. There's going to be a dread curse. They are enemies to lovers, reluctant partners, and hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. Ooh, and because I read Payback's a Witch, I know you teased that a little bit in your story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lana I'm Harper. I'm so glad. I love him. Thank you so much for spending some time to us today and talking to us about Payback's a Witch. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Happy Halloween. You too. Every country has those stories about mystical and magical beings. We've even talked about a few of them on this very podcast. In her latest novel, The Keepers of Metz and Vallow, author Wendy Webb, who's earned the distinction of Queen of the Northern Gothic for setting her books in the area around Lake Superior, taps into her Finnish heritage for her haunting story about twins discovering their family's long-held secrets. It even makes its way into the book's title. That's because Metz and Vallow translates into Forest Light. This is a great read as the weather starts to turn cooler and your thoughts start to turn to ghosts and spirits and, and things that go bump in the night. And I want to know, what are you telling potential readers to entice them to pick this up? Well, the, um, the impetus behind this story was I started to kind of look into folklore and it kind of occurred to me that a lot of different cultures have the same sort of folklore. And I'm talking about like fairies or little people. You hear about it a lot in, you know, Ireland and England, and they can control a whole lot of things. And sometimes they're nice to you. Sometimes they really aren't. And um, I started looking into my own family history. My mom is the daughter or the granddaughter of Finnish immigrants. And boy, there's a lot of dark stuff when you start looking into your own <laughs> heritage and folklore. And I learned that J.R.R. Tolkien 
used this epic poem of the Finnish people called the Kalevala to write Lord of the Rings. And I thought, you know what, Um, if it was good enough for him, let me sort of look into this and see what's lurking in my own background. And I found a lot of dark stuff. And that was the start of it. Were you really surprised at how dark it was? I mean, we are talking, I guess, about the about Finland, where it's dark for half the year, right? The most surprising thing I've learned, and now I'm bragging to all my friends, and I make them call me Gandalf, is that um, the Vikings, when they were pillaging and raiding, they just gave Finland a wide berth because they believed that the Finnish people could control the sea and the weather, nature. And I'm like, well, okay, basically... They thought the Finns were Gandalf. And um, so now, yes, I, I, I make everybody call me that now. <laughs> but, um, and whether they could or whether they couldn't, that's what the Vikings believed. And I thought that was really cool. And so I started looking into it more, and it does go pretty dark. It sort of goes on to this day, too. I love how you're able to weave that part of what you learned into the story. And we won't say a whole lot because it's not fair to give it away to people when they haven't even had a chance to pick up the book yet. And that's sort of what I try to try to do in the book. It's a modern day story, but it's under the premise of what if all that lore and legend in all of our backgrounds, it doesn't matter what your ancestry is, everybody's got lore, everybody's got legend. What if that was real? And what would that look like in the modern day? You play, too, with, I think, a type of family lore that a lot of people are familiar with, which is kind of this power of twins and the the bond between twins. Talk a little bit more about that. You know, I am not a twin, but I've always been sort of fascinated with the bond between twins. And it just sort of happened. And that's how all my books happen. I I don't plan things out. I start with a concept and a character and usually a place. But then it just plays out as I'm writing it. And it just seemed to fit. Um, Usually in my books, I have a little bit of a romance. But in this one, it's more a brother and a sister finding out about their own heritage and I think it worked really well. I love them. <laughs> I love those too. Well, I'm going to jump right to one of my my final questions, just because it kind of dovetails nicely with what you just brought up. Because I I love the two of them as well, and I got the feeling that there might be more to their story. So, is there any chance there will be more? Oh, I think so. I never rule that out. Um, I always say that all my books are standalones, but they're all set in the same fictional town and you know fooling nobody if 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 anyone knows the lake superior area it's i'm taking off of bayfield wisconsin um which is just this lovely little um tourist town but i set all my books there and so whether um and i i have characters that our main characters in one book kind of filter through and come in as minor characters in another And so I really think that Annie and Theo, I'm getting a lot of response to them. And I'd like to have them in other books. Now, you've earned the nickname Queen of the Northern Gothic for for setting your stories in this area of the Great Lakes. I love it. Queen (laughs) of anything. That's fine. That's cool with me. Um, But I, 
didn't realize that I was in, basically inventing a genre because we have gothics in the South, the, the long tradition of Southern gothics, but I couldn't set a book down South because I don't live there. And I, I really feel like you have to live in a place and know a place in order to really credibly set a book there. We also have gothics in England. Um, and that's where the other side of my family is from, Cornwall, England. And I don't rule out going over there and spending a couple of months and setting a book there because that is a perfect place for a gothic. But where I live is on the Great Lakes, Lake Superior. And that's where I set these books. Nobody had ever done it before. I loved reading about that setting because I really know nothing about that part of this beautiful country of ours. And I'm so intrigued at what just sounds like this amazing natural beauty, but also kind of got to be a little bit careful because it might sneak up on you. Absolutely. Oh, it's funny because I usually, when it's not a pandemic, I usually uh, do a nationwide book tour. And people down south, I've got a lot of great bookstores down south, and they think it, it, the Great Lakes, is, it, they're so exotic because they've never been here. But Lake Superior especially, I tell this story at a lot of my readings. There's this feeling of people who live here that Lake Superior is a being, is kind of alive. And people don't say it out loud, but you really feel it. And I, it, one of the gr greatest examples of that is Several years ago, there was a guy, a swimmer, who was trying to swim across all the Great Lakes, and he couldn't get across Lake Superior. And he was fool enough to do an interview um, saying, you know, I don't know why I can't get across Lake Superior. And why do they call it Superior anyway? Is it really Superior? <laughs> I can't tell you how many people I heard say, huh, good luck trying to get across it now. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> And also, it, it, like, I had a question here on my list. I was like, have you had your own kind of supernatural experiences, it, like, living there? And and that story really tells it all. Well, and there's another great story. It, this happened just, I think, about two years ago. There was a huge storm. And when you talk about Lake Superior storms, I mean, ships go to the bottom. Waves are crashing. It's it, Lake Superior, when it's angry, is just breathtaking. So there was this huge storm one night and this couple who lived on the lake went out and found that the lake had given them a gift that night. It was their canoe that had gone missing years earlier and it washed up on their beach after that storm. And they were on the news going, well, I guess the lake was done with it. And gave it back. It's no wonder you write stories, these kinds of stories set in that part of the world. It just, it, it, it happens around you. It does. It really does. And there's a lot of ghosts. I, I lived in Duluth, Minnesota, which is a little port city um, on Lake Superior. And that place is haunted. <laughs> <laughs> it is haunted. There's so many ghost stories up there. And so that's kind of what in, infused my writing. And, you know, we're talking about gothics and, and, and one thing that almost all gothic stories have in common are really big old houses and, and your books mm -hmm. are no exception. Why do places like that inspire you? 
I don't have a really good answer to that, but I will tell you that what inspired my first book, The Tale of Halcyon Crane, I took a trip to uh, Mackinac Island, which is um, off the coast of Michigan. And it's it's really a beautiful place, but it's very creepy, too, because no cars can go on it. And you get around everywhere by horse and carriage on this island. And um, you have to get there by ferry. And you come on the ferry and you kind of turn this corner. And on the cliff is this row of enormous old Victorian mansions. And I just looked. There's this one. It was It's yellow and it's got this wraparound porch. And I just looked at it and went, oh, my gosh, that's where I'm going to set my first book. And it just kind of went from there. You know, it's always a place for me. I, I don't know why. It's just a place just sparks my imagination. I think a lot of times, too, these old houses or these old buildings that have been standing for so long, and you know so many people have walked through the doors, they've lived there, they've died there. They have history yep. there. You just know there's got to be, if the walls could talk, the stories they would tell. That's absolutely true. That's that's a big part of it, too. And especially if that house is in your own family. But a year ago, I bought a 100-year-old house here in Minneapolis. And I always think about that. Who were the people that lived here? Who built it? What were their stories? You know, I'm sitting in the dining room. They had family dinners here. In a, a next book, not the next one, but one coming up, I want to play with that notion about time and place. Like, are, are those people still here somehow, living their own lives as I'm living mine? So that's going to be another book someday. Oh, I, I can't wait for that one. I'm already mm-hmm. like, I'm I'm in rapture just listening to you tell me all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> in, before all that, people can go and pick up the keepers of Mets and Valo. Wendy Webb, thank you for your time today and sharing these incredible stories with us. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Here's a fun little fact. While the first fairy tales were written down in the 17th and 18th century, some researchers believe they may have originated thousands of years earlier, like in the Bronze Age. In the many, many years since, those stories about princesses, spoiled children, scheming witches, and murderous pirates have been told and retold countless times. Author Soman Chinani, best known for the School for Good and Evil series, has written a collection of new stories that are just as good, if not better, than the old ones we've all come to love. I had a chance to chat with him about Beasts and Beauty, Dangerous Tales. Fairy tales have been reinvented again and again. Tell me what inspired you to do your retelling. I think for me, because I grew up with Disney and had those kind of old versions in my head, I felt like, you know, kids these days and adults to some extent were being cheated by these kind of sanitized clean versions where the good guy always won, you know? So I just thought, especially with everything going on in the world today, I wanted to hit a little bit of a reset button and tell these stories over in a stronger kind of way. 
I found it interesting because, you know, like, as you mentioned, Disney is kind of the sanitized versions of these fairy tales. The originals by the Grimm brothers and and Hans Christian Andersen always felt really dark and and a little um, like a little evil. And yours to me landed somewhere in the middle where where that we have more than one kind of of princess and being rescued doesn't mean waiting for uh someone to come and get you but sometimes taking care of that yourself yeah i mean i think also one of the things i was thinking about is that in those stories the hero is often slumbering their way to a happy ending they're not fully aware of you know their own responsibility and the threat they face and things just kind of happen to them they have no agency you know i'm even thinking of someone like simba or ariel or cinderella or any of these characters you know fate is thrust upon them um and the helpers do more more of the work than the protagonist actually does so you know for me it's important that just as a founding principle my characters are have more agency you know they're they're stronger and more responsible and they're in charge of their own fates, you know, be it good or bad. So um, I think that's the important, the important thing for me is that at the end of the day, my characters are in charge. Your characters also happen to be a lot more diverse than the fairy tales a lot of us grew up on. Yes, on purpose, because I think those stories have become universal to some extent, but all the characters are white and that's not particularly helpful for the world at large, because, you know, you, if you're not white, like like me, you can project yourself into a white character skin. But if you do that over and over and over again, at some point, it catches up with you, you know. So I think it's important that we that we diversify our fairy tales and are able to not necessarily just give them new skin, but we invent the story so they actually have meaning to people of color, you know. Um, because these are not just Western European stories. And I think it's, that's an easy argument to be like, oh, well, then we should invent new fairy tales. But the, the issue is all these stories have appeared throughout history um, in every culture. So whether you're in China, whether you're in Europe, whether you're in South America, there's a Snow White story. There's a Cinderella story. There's a Red Riding Hood story. You know, these are elemental tales. And so I think it's important to go back to these tale types um, and reconfigure them so that they work for a universal audience. It's amazing to me, too, that, you know, it doesn't matter what culture that the story came from. This idea of beauty and what is beauty and the quest for beauty always seems to be a part of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always going to be there, at least on the surface level in those original tales, you know, to some extent. And often in the Disney version, it's about an older, an older female who you know, is pursuing her own identity. But I think I was looking deeper at the question of, okay, a lot of these characters in the original stories aren't aware of their own beauty, you know? And I wanted to make sure that in these stories, beauty came with a price, whether you were aware of it or not aware of it. Aware of it. Um, you know, you couldn't just wish to be beautiful uh, without something happening as a result. You know, beauty was not an end to itself. There was always a cost to it. Like in the original story in Red Riding Hood, you know, if you're beautiful in that town, then the risk comes with it because the most beautiful girl in the village is sacrificed every spring to the wolves that surround the town. So to be beautiful is literally to invite your own death. So, you know, to me, it was looking about what does beauty mean in fairy tales and what what is a beast in fairy tale and trying to find the gray area between them uh, more than the Disney version might, per se. I want to talk about how the the stories are ordered and how you wrote them, because we do have this progression and there are times when 
one one story that precedes the other kind of hints to what the next story is going to be. So when you were writing them, did you write them in this particular order or was that just something that happened when you sat down and you realized you had all these stories and thought, okay, now let's try to figure out how I want to present them? No, I wrote them completely exactly in order. One led into the next and is exactly as they were presented um, in the book. You know, it's funny because when you, when you, I thought of it like an album, like a musical album. And usually when you do an album, you do like 50 songs and then pick the 12 best and sort of, you know, work to create the right order for them. And I think in this case, I was trying to create this sort of unifying experience by doing it exactly in the order that you would, you know, read them. I, did, I don't know if I knew that at the time, because I felt like I was always going to reevaluate once it was done. Um, and my editor kept being like, okay, let's see once it's done, how we want to order them. Um, and I was like, yes, yes. But somewhere inside me, I was like, I, I feel like I'm putting these exactly in the order that they should be. Because each each fairy tale was in response to the one before. So it felt like they were in conversation even as I was writing them. So the only one that was out of order, I think, was Snow White. I think I wrote that third, and I think it's second in the collection. That's the only thing that that was different. And it makes a lot sense now that I talked to you that the last story in the collection is a retelling of Peter Pan, and it's from Wendy's point of view, because we kind of end with being grown up and what it means to now be an adult and and the things that we lose as we grow up. Yes, I think the ending is, you know, at once tragic and also hopeful in the idea that, okay, like we can live in this world where where fairy tales exist and fairy tales are real, but then at some extent, at some point, you do have to transition into being an adult where fairy tales will now have a different meaning. They'll live in your memory and have the lessons of something deeper. And I think that's what happens with Wendy. It's this idea that she lived in a fairy tale and then she was able to let go of it. Um, in order to grow up and in order for, you know, uh, in a way, her child and also her childhood self, to some extent, go on to, you know, its own its own life. Uh, and I think that was that was sort of the moral of that story, that we all have our kind of, you know, childhood pain body, I call it, you know, like it's a, it's our past. And are we willing to at some point let that go also um, and leave it in childhood? So growing up, what was your favorite fairy tale? Um, maybe Hansel and Gretel. I think for me, Hansel and Gretel was always so real. Like it just felt, it felt like so haunting and something that could potentially happen to anyone, which is you get captured by a stranger um, and, you know, put in a situation where you might die. And then the question is, how do you escape? It's such a simple tale, simple lesson. Uh, and yet I think it's one that, that every kid understands at a primal level. So that happened to be my favorite one in your whole collection. I loved Hansel and Gretel, the way you retold it. Did you draw on your own personal, you know, background in history and, and, and culture for that particular story? I mean, I think for me, it was about finding, you know, having grown up Indian and sort of understanding Indian folktales and things like that, having that sort of cultural specificity to the story. But at the same time, trying to redo the tale to make it more about the adults. So, you know, sometimes to me, the cultural specificity is about making it feel um, just, I think, more authentic to some extent to give it a, a place rather than just uh, sort of the surface generic feeling of Europe that you often get in the Grimm's tales. So I wanted it this way to, to feel like you were in a new setting um, where it might have more subtleties depending on the culture. Um, but I think it was also the fact that I have a niece and nephew who are twins. 
And I understand the way they talk to each other and the way they interact. And I just thought, you know, it would be fun to, to sort of use them as inspiration for, for that story. Now, who do you want the audience of, the, of this collection to be? Is it adults? Is it kids? Is it adults reading to kids and sharing these stories together? I wanted it to be for everybody, honestly, because I felt like the way that the Grimm stories are, they, they, you can read them as an adult. And I do, you know, I do and I did many times, you know, as, as research, not just for this, but everything else I do. At the same time, kids can read it. Adults can read it to kids. You can listen to them together. There's just, there's something about fairy tales that, that elementally hit who we are, you know, at every age. And I think that was the ambition for the collection was to do something that worked for everyone. And that was a lofty, lofty ambition, but it was one that I think guided me through the whole process, which was this is not for an age group. You know, and I think the the proof is that in the U.S. it's being published for 10 and up, uh, and in the U.K. it's being published as an adult literary novel. So, huh. um, you know, already we're having that split. And I love that you call them dangerous tales and not necessarily fairy tales. Yeah, because I think to me, it was this idea of bringing that back, like the idea of, of these are tales of warning to some extent, and not that it's going to all end in evil, but you know, that's what fairy tales are. Fairy tales are like survival guides to life. And also I didn't want, I didn't want it to be a collection where, you know, it comes out and people are like, Oh, it's, um, you know, it's too much for kids or it, I just didn't want to deal with the stress of people being like, um, uh, putting verdicts on what was appropriate and what was not appropriate in these stories. Cause to me, the great thing about fairy tales is that they do go to dark and dangerous places. So I'm like, if we just put it on the title, I think people will then go into it understanding that I am trying to recapture the old Grimm's Tales. You know, we totally could have used this book uh, during 2020 and everything that we went through just to get ourselves around it and, and, and realize that there is some good out there. Yeah, I mean, I think also it was a product of that year because I think I wanted to go back to the basics. You know, I wanted to sort of clear out. Um, and, and also the world was in such a precarious place that I just felt like, okay, let's just go back to, to universal life lessons. You know, I feel like that's all I can count on at this point. There's no other book I would know what to write right now. So it just seemed, seemed the best place to start. I know you wrote in your author's note that you were hoping for a break between writing and finishing the School for Good and Evil series and then your next project, but this one just happened to jump in the way. Have you now had the time to decide what your next project is going to be? Well, I had, it's funny because um, I sort of had a, a kind of spree of, of things that I wanted to do um, that I wasn't sure on the timeline and everything like that. But then the movie got greenlit and the pandemic happened. And so I was basically for the last year, you know, in the same sort of situation as everyone else where you couldn't live life freely. So I tried to get all my projects done for the next three years. I'm about to finish a book that'll come out next year. And then I have a graphic novel coming out in 2023. Um, so now, probably in, in the next two weeks when I'm done with this new book, then I'll take a break uh, and, and really kind of reevaluate what I want to do. And, and the world is, you know, it's starting to go back to a little bit of normal. So um, I think I just sort of made the decision to, to postpone the kind of empty uh, sort of fun period in my life where I got to, to sort of restart and refresh and all of that until what's coming up now, you know, and use the last year really to just work really hard um, while everything was so locked down. 
Well, we've been talking with Soman Chanani. The new book is Beasts and Beauty, Dangerous Tales. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. And they all lived happily ever after. We're going to be stepping away from this podcast for a few weeks and taking some time off to travel. Imagine that it has been forever. But I promise we'll be back with some great ideas about hitting the road just in time for Thanksgiving. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books if you want to know what's what. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.